Hi, good evening. It's Friday, September 30th, and this is Travelogue, the weekly podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm your host, your substitute host today, Laura Redman. I'm the Deputy Digital Director of Traveler. This week, we are wrapping up the series that we started earlier in the month about crazy jobs in our industry, the kind that you wish you had or you're just happy you now know exist. And we have two great guests here today, Mark Elwood, contributing editor, and Jim Coyle, president of Coyle Hospitality Group. I asked earlier if it's fair for me to call you a hotel inspector. You said, yeah, sure. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> we are a, we have a hotel inspection company serving hotels, restaurants, hospitality, world travel, all over the world. Great. Now, you and Mark had a chat a while back about, about your job. This is, I, I basically, I think I'm responsible for this because I would kill to have this job. I feel like this is even better than being a journalist because you get to go to the hotels the way we do, but you get to really impact how they function because you give them feedback. Jim, tell us a little bit about what your business consists of because it's sort of a niche within a niche. So explain why you're so special. Well, I think it's actually interesting that you mentioned journalism, because uh, we actually conduct ourselves like a journalism company within the hospitality industry, reporting, providing feedback, detail, real first-level story to hotels and restaurants about the, really their guest experience. So that's what we do. Uh, hotels, restaurants, and people are businesses that generally all our clients call their customers guests. So we have to do some ball teams and things like that, but generally they want to know how the customer experience is going where there's place for improvement and how they can improve and you know gain market share. And so inside travel, there's a lot of really wonderful nuances um, where people checking in can have bad experiences, good experiences. When you're in a hotel room, you can find certain things in the room that might set you off. But generally, the, the, the real, when you really reduce it back to something, when people travel, as you know, they're, they're very vulnerable. And if you're traveling on business, it has to go right or you're really, really in a, in a deficit. If you're traveling for leisure, you've got important people with you who you want to have a good time. And so if you've been traveling through an airport, train, whatever, by the time sometimes you show up at a front desk at a hotel, you're pretty frazzled mm-hmm. and you are in an emotional state and lots of stuff happens at that juncture. But you're like secret shoppers for travel, basically. Exactly. So the, the, you know, you're, you're sent out, you send an army of people out mm-hmm. incognito to assess a travel experience. But but the difference is, and I, this is what I think makes you so special, there are plenty of companies who offer secret shopping for travel and they have lots of full-time employees whose job is to schlep from hotel to hotel, check whether the buffet is warm, check how the check-in is. But you don't operate like that, do you? No, we don't. We have, Currently, we have a panel of 25,000 people that we manage. Uh, and inside that panel are doctors, lawyers, uh, brothers, fathers, daughters, mothers, uh, people who travel a lot, and they've expressed an interest in doing what we do. Most importantly, people in that crowdsource, if you will, represent some very fascinating um, assets. So, for instance, where we really got started with this is we were doing hotel inspections like anybody else back in 1996, and I found somebody to go in to do a Radisson hotel here in New York, and they complained that it was unlike any of the other Radissons they'd ever stayed in, and the manager was very, very interested in that because they were very worried about the Radisson flag being here in New York City with small guest rooms. And so they said, well, if you have somebody that's spending a lot of time in Radisson rooms, how about sending me a Marriott guy? who stays at a lot of Marriott's. How about sending me a Starwood guy? And so that's kind of how it started. And all of a sudden, we started, again, this is back in 1996, and really, this is before email addresses were really you know, uh, prevalent at all. 
And so I used my directory, uh, the Cornell Hotel School directory, and started calling friends, family, and saying, I need you at a hotel in New York. You know, do you know anybody that's a Marriott card-carrying rewards member? And sure enough, that all started kind of coming along. And what we found out was that we were going up really hard against hotel companies that said, we need a full-time inspector, someone who just travels around all the time to inspect hotels. That's the only way we'll do it. And all of a sudden, they started realizing that when real people were given some guidelines and some training a little bit on what to watch, the feedback was 10 times as good. And so- uh, Why? First of all, uh, there's a lot of flaws with the professional hotel inspector method. Uh, one is, is they spend 48 weeks out of the year traveling around the hotels, and they try to be a proxy for a guest, which is really impossible because, first of all, I haven't paid for a hotel room in years. And secondly, when you're logged up in a hotel room filling out a 3,000-word questionnaire <laughs> about Pantone colors of you know uh, amenities and whether the sign was four feet off the floor instead of six feet off the floor, you're no longer a guest. You're actually a full-time inspector, but that's the thinking in the hospitality industry until probably about five or six years ago. And so, we, with the internet kind of coming out again back in 1996, and it was really a happenstance. It wasn't any strategic thing because again, I thought we would be 10 to 12 inspectors traveling in the world, and all of a sudden, like anything else, our clients innovated us. They said uh, Mandarin Oriental would say, "We want people who are staying in other luxury hotels." To come and tell us what's happening in our port courier. People who are paying to stay. This is the key point. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you're you're grabbing people who are a customer of a high-end hotel mm-hmm. who spend eight hundred dollars a night to stay at a hotel, and then you say to them, "Would you like to go to another one for free and tell us your perspective?" It's like I think of you what you do as a bit like Mission Impossible, where there's like an army of IMF people, mm-hmm. and you know Tom Cruise assembles the perfect crack team for each gig. You're that for hotels. Exactly. And that's in the scale and the size of our of our operation of having 25,000 people who visit our website on average three times a month for assignments. We have a very intimate relationship with the panel. And uh, over the years, and again, being the leading company doing this for 20 years, we have a, a way and the ability to source people uh, with incredible backgrounds that are very meaningful to our clients. We have one boutique hotel client who wants nothing but women between the ages of 30 to 35 who travel on their own because they felt that the bars inside the hotel were very uh, intimidating. And they felt that the staff did not relate to single female travelers the way they did to male travelers. And so we, our task is to get these people, not tell them too much so that they're prejudiced about the experience, going in. And all I can tell you is that, again, where the hotel inspection model used to be checking the boxes yes and no, they now rely on adjectives, thoughts, ideas. And when, when this is coming from the consumer's mouth directly to the, the ears of God, if you will, the CEO of Marriott or Starwood, uh, a lot of special things happen. And that's one thing I would say if we talk about the panel, maybe we'll talk about it later. The thing that surprised me the most is that with survey numbness out there now, People fill out surveys and they know it goes nowhere. They know with us that if they explain what happened to them at their particular hotel, they know that the CEO of Marriott's going to read it or the CEO of uh, Andre Balaz is going to read what they wrote. And that's really important to people as their feedback. And they really, once they have that responsibility to say, I know that the president of this hotel company is going to read this, they really let go and they really notice things and they go out and things. So our goal is to make sure that that feedback, to some degree, has some guardrails on it, so that it's always, our rule is it always has to be informative and constructive. Well, I was going to ask, what kind of details are you looking for? Are there, is there a set standard of, you know, 10 
more or less check boxes that have to be hit every time? Or are you, you know, are you going in with black lights? There was that huge expose, mm-hmm. you know, inside edition or extra extra or something like that, where they were talking about going around New York City hotels with the black light looking at sheets, you know, right. is that the kind of thing you have to do? We get requests to do that. We don't do a lot of that. Honestly, that would actually be under the province of a hotel inspector or again, most hotel companies now do that in their own. They have their employees do it. They're really looking for us to uh, do what uh, guests can do and from a guest perspective. And it's funny that you bring that up because our challenge always is to provide enough balance that someone's in there doing a job and noticing the things that you're asking them to notice, but we're not tasking them so heavily that they're no longer feeling like a guest. Mm-hmm. So, what's the gold standard in terms of of a of a hotel room? You know, if you're going to a luxury property, do you have a list of things that you're keeping an eye out for? You, you mentioned yeah. signs have to be yeah. six inches off the floor. You know, in a fr- well, in the hotel world, a lot of it's franchised. Okay. So a lot of what hotel companies worry about are, are the franchisees using our programs, mm-hmm. our signs, our, our things like that. When you get into uh, the experiential hotel companies that are managed, like Kimpton, Four Seasons, they worry less about that. They worry more about the guest experience. So, But in case of a guest room, a, um, a typical luxury hotel may have 100 checkpoints for a guest room very easily. A uh, cruise uh, line will have over 3,000 checkpoints they want uh, wow. checked on a seven-day stay. Restaurants, uh, fine restaurants in New York City have about 125 things they want you to check the box on. And while that's fine, the checkbox is good because it does structure some of the feedback, our clients always come back to us and they always say that uh, they, they call, one of our clients called it our Japanese engineering. They said, your Japanese engineering is your narrative. And I said, well, what does that mean? He goes, <laughs> people pay more for Japanese cars because they're engineering. As he says, they're tighter. They're, it's, it goes, your narrative is what we read. And again, so... The beauty of the evaluator is that they are not a full-time inspector. Mm-hmm. There's someone like you or Mark mm-hmm. who've been out traveling, and you might see something different than he does. And as you express it, as long as it's constructive in a way, that again, constructive can mean it can be negative, it can be positive, and it often is. It just has to be something that the hotel can do something with. Tell us about, so you, you told me once that one of your favorite kinds of inspectors were musicians because they know how to work in a team and they take direction. They're looking to be guided. Right. So they're, right. they're, they're sort of obedient and diligent. Describe some of your best inspectors. Who are they in their real lives when they're not wearing their like Superman gear? They're like Clark Kent. Right. Uh, it really is a broad brush stroke of professional people. That our, our inspectors are professional. Um, the average inspector is between the age of 25 and 45, college educated, 60% have master's degrees, 75% have traveled overseas. Okay, so what does that tell you? It tells you someone who's uh, had some preparation, also has uh, met some goals in their life by achieving college, and also by the fact that if they travel overseas, it's nice that they're traveled, but it also tells us they're risk takers and that they're willing to go out without a net underneath them. And in the hotel inspection, when we send someone to a hotel for three days, we give them um, you know, a checklist, but a lot of stuff happens mm-hmm. along those three days, and they've got to be operating on their own. They've got to be resourceful. They've got to be confident. So, for instance, if we're supposed to measure the spa, and the spa is closed for renovations. We need someone who's going to make a game-time decision about what to do. So they go to the front desk and say, I'm here for a massage. And they say, well, our spa is closed. We can send you across the town to another spa. Mm-hmm. A good inspector would know that's not what they want from me. They want me to use their spa. So things happen. Uh, you will complain about something being wrong in the guest room. No one shows up. I need an inspector who's thinking on their feet to say, well, I better call them back. If I've been asked to go see the concierge and the concierge desk is empty, 
I better go find the concierge. So those are the types of things that come up. It's funny that you mentioned musicians. We found that out quite by accident. We took our top 100 evaluators about 10 years ago, and we did a profile on them to see what were some of the commonalities. And a bunch of them were musicians. And so when I asked one of them, I said, yeah, there are a lot of musicians. He goes, yeah, of course. He goes, he goes uh, first of all, we, always, we have to really follow directions. He goes, and we know how to do things uh, with other people. He said, more importantly, like, this is like performing. When you check into a hotel, the curtain comes up. you got to be on. He goes, and so we know how to perform. And he goes, and also, if I have to be a complaining guy with a bottle of wine, I can do that. I can act the part. And that really gave us a lot of information as to what were great evaluators. And we looked at, again, some of the evaluators that weren't so good. But ultimately, these are folks that blend in. So when they go to a very luxury hotel, they're not showing up in elastic pants uh, and uh, a gym bag. They know how to blend in. They also, as one of our clients from the Four Seasons said, was, um, goes, I want people who know what it's like to spend $40 for an omelet and a cup of coffee. So they're not shocked by it. They, they, no, they've not they've sho- spent $40 yeah, on an yeah. omelet. So when they're asked to spend it, they're not focusing on how can an omelet cost 40 bucks. Right. Well, they're focusing on whether it's a good omelet. Yeah, take for instance one of our restaurant clients, uh, Danielle, uh, has been a client of ours for 15 years. I mean, that's not a, a normal dining experience or a casual dining experience for most people. So when they go in there, they still have to have some experience with how captain service is, what they're expecting, and the things that go wrong. And Danielle knows that they're doing 99% of the things right each night, and they're not worried about being clean. They're not worried about the food being good. They're worried about how you felt. And so, therefore, you show up at the desk. And this isn't particular to Danielle, but when you show up at the uh, podium at a nice restaurant, if the maitre d' is only speaking to the male and ignoring the female entirely, and she made the reservation... That just will that will drive someone. Do you someone see co- that often? Oh, really? often. Yeah, women. Women. See, this is. I want. This is what I want to ask you because I'm fascinated. If you had, with a gun to your head, you had to say women or men are better at hotel your in your hospitality inspection. Who is more useful? Oh, that's a bold question, Granny. <laughs> um, without a question, women. Women are better. First of all, women are better at describing people, which is a big part of what we do. So, in other words, when you're in a nice restaurant, yeah, we are. people don't have people don't have names. <laughs> Laura's t- grinning. You can't see this. But <laughs> well, I'm we, it's 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 going to ring true with anybody that's that's listening. Is that uh, you know a lot of people don't wear name tags in, in these nice hotels and these nice uh, restaurants. So you have to describe them. A man won't forget what a hostess looks like that sat them five minutes ago, where a woman can recall hair length, jewelry everything about that person. So in our programming, our male evaluators, we spend a lot of time teaching them how to describe people. With males, we tell them when you encounter somebody, go right to your cell phone and, and give the description to your cell phone or jot it down because you're not going to remember it. That's the biggest part of our challenge is that when people are in fine restaurants or fine hotels, there's certain things they will not remember and there's certain things they'll remember for years to come. That is interesting. It's very journalistic. You're teaching people observational sure. skills at this point. But totally. it's also, I remember reading a book about World War II spies and how successful female spies were in occupied France. And one of the reasons was that a woman on her own is sort of ignored. She's not asked questions. And if she is asked questions, she's always got family excuses or there's something. She gets dismissed much more. Because she's less threatening. Because she's less threatening. And so these lethal female agents would sort of ricochet around France, wrecking the Nazi regime. I assume in a hotel in the same way that that sort of women, while they'll get, they might get a bit of catcalling or they might have to fend something off, they're also, they sort of blend in in a slightly different way. Yeah, and I think they're dismissed. 
to some degree, um, yeah. de- again, depending on who the employees are, right? And, and, and when you get into international environments, it, it can be really, uh, there's, a, there's an X factor to that. But, I mean, when I started this company back in 1996, when uh, Verbena opened, that was a chef, a female chef-owned restaurant that made the news of the New York Times that that was even happening, Deborah Ponzak's restaurant. Mm-hmm. That was a mere 20 years ago. And now in the travel industry, women are everywhere. Now in traveling, now you look at like what Kimpton Hotels do and Commune, the boutique hotels, they were catering to gay and lesbian travelers and female travelers long before anyone else were. And it wasn't because they're from San Francisco and they're, and they're you know, uh, an open company. They really are. But these are also highly discretionary travelers that spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so they knew that when female travelers came to the hotel, it, the, the dark-lit hallways, which were really kind of moody and trendy, women didn't feel safe there on their own. Interesting. And so the, these, this, is, this has all been a very big change in the last five to ten years. I mean, in, in hotel business, they talk about the Chinese traveler, the Indian traveler, who is going to be coming to our shores, the middle-class people traveling here. Currently, the, uh, the female traveler is one that is still is not completely understood and how to deal with it, and, or trained upon. So, or represented. Do you or think? represented, yeah. But uh, more and more, women are picking up the check for a business dinner. Uh, they're showing up with a male at the front desk, and they've booked the room. They're there for the weekend. Their male guest is along with them. And some of those nuances, if you're not treating the, um, the female traveler correctly, you can screw the pooch right there in the first five minutes of this day. One of the things that, um, and I don't know, Laura, if you feel it's true, we did a study on um, name tags, for a client, asked them what they thought about name tags because about 10 years ago, hotels moved away from having name tags. Morgan's Hotel Group was the first hotel not to have name tags, and name tags were always such the uh, standard in our industry. Once we did the cross-tabulating, we found out that women, more than men by a large margin, liked having name tags on employees. Mm. And the reason for it was because the accountability later and that what they felt was that if they were to receive bad service, they'd want to know who they who the person was, a thinking that a man wasn't even in any and of the, the men. And would remember well, the name. I'm, I would, I'm kind of surprised that's a gendered thing. It's that, in one study. It's in yeah. one study. But at the end of the day, men weren't even thinking about, am I going to get treated badly by some of the front desk? A woman was saying, I'd like to know who I'm talking with by their name tag because if I need to pursue this, I need them for something or mm-hmm. whatever, I want to know who their name is. Who to hold accountable, ultimately. Or, or maybe, or also maybe, in, in the, and again, the survey was already out, the, the water's already in the bridge, maybe also to better uh, engage that person later for a favor or, or for better service. Again, something that might not be on a male's mind. Well, which is kind of interesting because now so many major hotels, like the Four Seasons, has an app where you can literally go an entire hotel stay and not communicate with anyone. You can reach the concierge on your app, the front desk, you can check in on your app, you can order room service, you can ask for a toothbrush if you forgot that using Mm -hmm. that. So I was going to ask if online reviews or mobile apps, things like this, have changed the way you do your job. Yes, definitely. Um, But one thing to remember is that hotels and restaurants, and restaurants in particular, have been reviewed forever. Mm -hmm. Okay, Restaurants were being reviewed in newspapers long before social media ever came along. So the social media boom where Coke and Pepsi are thrilled that people are tweeting about them, well, that might be a new phenomenon. Restaurants have been reviewed and rated for a long time. And, you know, Zagat's is, is a, was a pretty um, well-established reviewing service that, you know, made reviewing kind of uh, something that restaurateurs and hoteliers had to deal with. 
So with the uh, again with the the scale of TripAdvisor, who, who absolutely is 800 pound gorilla in the uh, review space in hotels, that's changed our job, but really for the much better because clients will call us up and say, "I'm reading a TripAdvisor review." And you know what? I've got to complaints about the fact that my bar is too loud at night and it goes on too late. I want you to send in, next time you're in coil, I want you to go down to the front desk and complain about the loud bar because we just had a training about that this week. I want to see how people react to that. So TripAdvisor gives us a lot of real-time, great informing data that we then script into the evaluations um, so that people can try those things. And also, I mean, as a matter of fact, I mean, when an evaluator is going to a hotel, they may go look at the TripAdvisor reviews as a normal guest would and already kind of be in a perspective about what that hotel is about, what people are complaining about. Look, I'm going to ask the one question that I'm sure everyone listening is thinking. A free hotel stay at the Mandarin Oriental, all you have to do is fill out a form, how do I get this job? Tell us how. <laughs> how you find people, how you train them, how you assess people, whether they're qualified. The people who are listening, who are already writing, Googling Coil Hospitality. Mark is working on his resume. He's not yeah. going to exactly. work for me anymore. Exactly. <laughs> tell me, tell me, you. tell me. How our, our office is in Midtown. You just have to drop a bag of money uh, inside, <laughs> inside the front door. It's actually very easy to become part of our team. Basically, you just go to our website and fill out some basic information, and you're, you're considered as part of our pool. Once that happens, the assignments, um, you compete against other evaluators for assignments. Ooh, how so? Yeah, so In an arena, maybe? Uh, kind of. It's, on, it's an online arena, if you will. Um, but uh, we 25,000 people. Not everybody is you know, really active, but more than half are. We do about 3,000 assignments a month. Wow. So people would want to uh, review a hotel. They would say, I'd like to go review that hotel. And we look at their profile. And their profile is not only their demographics, but the work they've done for us. And so every assignment, every evaluator does for us has a 20-point scorecard on it. So the best thing to do would be to come in, work with us, take some of the more simpler assignments. And we do call evaluations where people just call a hotel and book a reservation or call and ask to be connected to room 310 to see if the hotel security features are up to place. Um, and if you get a 20-point score on that, you start to build up a profile, and then you start to get the more desirable assignments. And the nice thing is, is that if so, for instance, some of our top assignments, we just did a 14-day cruise in the Arctic where the evaluator was paid their travel, a fee, plus, I will say, a reimbursement that's well in excess of $20,000. Um, you can imagine that uh, we had several hundred people vying for that assignment. And who got it and why? The person that got the assignment has been an evaluator with us for 15 years. Um, it wasn't because of her length with us. It's because of her uh, loyalty programs with two very upscale cruise lines. She's in the, uh, the the gold circle on two of those lines, had been on a number of cruises, and also had done a number of high-end assignments for us so that we knew that she has the perspective to go in there, A, and do the job, because if she went in and did the assignment and failed at it, there's the $25,000 reimbursement that she's going to have to eat, which is not pleasant for anybody. But secondly, but most importantly, the reason why she was selected, uh, and the client actually, in this case, actually had some involvement about giving us some of the profile of the type of person they wanted. It's because she spent that kind of money before on a cruise line and has a great record with us. It's like jury duty, but you want to be picked. I feel like there's this <laughs> pool of people, and you, you know, it comes in the mail, and you're like, yes, I made it. Yeah, we've heard Emmanuel say it's more like the Hunger Games, but um, you know, uh, That's what you, I was thinking. because in cer- certain cases, like you know, some of the top restaurants um, in places like New York. 
you know, again, do the math, 25000 for doing a restaurant, Danielle, once a month. That assignment easily has a line of 60 to 70 people at it every single month. And you need to be someone that's got a really great background with us. And again, provide us information, your profile over time that tells us that you're not going to be floored when you walk in there. Now, might you get preference if your descriptions are lovely and lucid and have like nice turns of phrase? I'm asking because I'm a writer. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's funny, and that's one of the things when we look at the demographics. One thing you talk about journalism. I mean, it really is a journalistic job that we do. The one thing I can't train people to do is write. Mm-hmm. And so we ask for a written sample. We ask people, "What's the best restaurant you ate in the last year?" It doesn't really matter what the restaurant is. But if you give us three sentences, we know that you're not going to be giving enough to our clients in, in, uh, in terms of uh, ideas and descriptions. Also, if your best experience in the last year is only worthy of three sentences from you, you're probably not our evaluator. If you write a nice paragraph and it's very clear and descriptive and you're getting our ideas across, whether it's great or whether it's bad, we can work with you and give you the guidelines. And if I go to coilhospitality.com and fill out my profile, what else do I want to have in there that will make me attractive? Membership of loyalty programs. Absolutely. What else What else are things that are commonly requested of we inspectors? Just, we want to know where you're traveling. We want to know what kind of job you do. We just want to know that uh, you're someone who's picking up the check, really, for friends, for your family, on your own. That really is, again, I can't train you to spend you know, $800 for you know, one night in Houston because you're in there in a convention town. If you've done that and been through that, you have a perspective of saying, I get what, the, what that means. Because, again, I can't train you to have consumer insights or consumer feelings. We don't want to train that. We're very careful not to homogenize the evaluator in that environment. But ultimately, there isn't a magic answer to what we like and what we don't like. We have people from all kinds of backgrounds because at the end of the day, our clients are requesting that. Um, we do some brand work for some very big hotel companies that have uh, business class hotels. They don't want you know, uh, traveling Epicureans at their hotels. They want someone who's spending 60 nights a year at hotels at $70. It's, it's nice because th- those assignments are very straightforward. And again, that's a, that's a great assignment because that checklist, um, Laura, might be 20 questions long. It might just be, what were the towels like? Photograph the uh, the bathroom package because they want to make sure it's compliant. You go in, you do that well, you get a nice score. You're on. You're moving on. What happens when someone gets busted? There's the nature of the beast. When someone's been evaluated and they get the report back within two or three days, which is really how fast we turn them around. There's a bit of a sense of uh, oh, I knew that was an inspector and things like that. And of course, the first response: <laughs> Well, then why did you get 100 percent? In terms of when people uh, do get busted, um, if the client pushes back on it, you know we make a, we we will take care of that assignment and things like that. It's, it doesn't happen that often, um, and again, we're very careful not to overscript the stay, so that someone isn't showing up at the front desk twenty times. We also for a, a restaurant evaluations, which we do almost two thousand a month, we mix it up all the time. Two men this time, a walk in. Uh, a reservation that's canceled and re-reserved, things like that, just to kind of keep it mixed up. And most of our clients will come back and say, hey, listen, if they know who the evaluator is, that then that's fine because they should really do well. And one funny story, a well-known restaurateur, I won't name him, uh, called me up one time and said, Jim, I'm looking at my reservation book. That's back when we had reservation books. And he goes, your inspector was picked up on table 25 last night. I'm not paying for the report. And I said, well, uh, how, are, your, are your hosts and people? He goes, every night we watch to see who the inspector is. And if they're right, I don't want to pay for the report. 
I told him, okay, I said, that's fine, Steve. I said, but every time you're wrong, you got to give me $25. <laughs> and he said, no way. And the reason why is, and sure enough, and when I visited him six months later, I went and looked at his resume, they, were pick, they had evaluators every single night. Evaluator, table 52, definitely a shopper at 52. We went in there twice a month. So, wow. so the, the culture of it was, and, and by the way, and there's, there's, um, with luxury hotel companies, they would, in their training, say that that guest you're checking in today is probably paid to evaluate your level of service. Treat them that way. That was the starting wow. of, the, of, the, wow. of the training. That would breed some paranoia, I could think, on the hotel staff part. But. It could, but it also was, uh, yes, uh, again, Maybe not the best way to train people, but the idea was that uh, it's it's been very you know part and parcel as to you could be evaluated. Bartenders in particular are told that there could be someone there watching you handle cash once a month. Salespeople in particular, in all industries are are shopped all the time because they that's part of the sales training and making sure that you're advancing the sale and things like that. So there's industries where this is known and it's you're, you're coming in. So and when people assess a hotel. Let's talk about a hotel because I think it's particularly interesting right. about when people assess a hotel. What's the worst thing? What's the worst thing they can find, or what are real? What ruin guest experiences? Red flags. Yeah, red, red, you yeah. know what is guaranteed to ruin a guest experience? The the number one thing is evidence of a prior guest in the room. Yeah, then yeah. Okay, <laughs> we the, don't need to go fo- into too much yeah, detail. Followed closely by the presence of hair. The, yeah, hair, like a hair on the vanity. A hair on the tile. It could be as benign as one hair across the back of the toilet tank. That generally is it. But the evidence of a prior guest, and, and again, in the years we've been doing this, we've come across some pretty damning things that have, that have really ruined stays. That we we had one person who flicked on the TV, and there was a porn video oh, man. in there. So we asked the evaluator, said, "What happened?" He goes, "My guest immediately shot up off the couch and never sat down again for two days." <laughs> I was I, ch- I stayed in a, in a wonderful hotel in Italy recently, and I reached under. The, I looked under the bed when I was checking out just to see if anything. And there was a sign under there, and it said, "Yes, we do also clean under here. Don't worry." That's and funny. I thought that was the no, like so such clever. a brilliant, such a brilliant acknowledgement that guests are like, "Really? Are you really taking care?" And I, know, I you know, I, it it had been a wonderful hotel, and that just reiterated it. Yeah, that generally is what will set most people off. The other thing too is that you know people take bad service personally, and so if you, um, for a good example, in a restaurant environment, you um, when you get sat at a terrible table and you've had a reservation, you take it personally. You remember when you get a cold hamburger, or cold steak, you don't think someone's back in the kitchen. I'm going to get that guy with a cold steak. So being with, well, I mean, the biggest hotel merger recently between Marriott and Starwood is based upon the loyalty program, you know, gathering up those important people in the loyalty program. Big part of what we do is measuring what happens to a, a loyalty member when they check in. Do they get the correct upgrades? Are they getting the freebies and the things that go along? Those things are crucial. And if you're checking in, if you're a card-carrying member of one of the big hotel companies and you don't get your due, that can turn things uh, terrible right then and there, and the hotel companies know it. I mean, that's part of what they're doing with the uh, loyalty programs is they want they want to uh, increase your switching cost. Now, say you, this is just for you, Jim, you are applying for a job. What is the kind of dream gig you would like to have? What kind of resort, what kind of hotel, a cruise, you know, what would you die for? I, I, I mean, I have to say that, you know, the resort industry always is the most interesting because each resort is unto itself its own 
value proposition. So a golf club down in uh, Hilton Head versus a you know a monastery in um, in India, something like that. Those are the, always the most interesting because at the end of the day, they are selling basically a very authentic type of experience, and to measure that. It's really a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It really is a lot of fun to measure authenticity and things like that. And it's, again, that's done with words and ideas, not not with a checkbox. You've been doing this for 20 years. So you've obviously worked with, and you've worked with big names in this, Four Seasons, Mandarin. I mean, any basically mm-hmm. any major hospitality brand, you've had your, your fingers on it somehow. Tell me some innovation or change that a company has enacted, which has been triggered by some of your work. Explain to us how, as guests, we might benefit from the feedback that you'd given. It's hard for me to give you specific examples with a particular company, um, just because of you know we are under a code to some degree. But what I can tell you is that what often happens is the feedback that we provide will be feedback they've received existentially or you know in a, in a soft way another time and all of a sudden the, the light bulb goes off um, in terms of how words were used or how people were treated and things along those lines um, generally that that's really where we that's the sweet spot that we exist in, that we exist in in terms of you know actual enactments basically the area that that we've had the most impact in the industry is how um, how hotels handle problems we call it service recovery and so, in all the hotel reviews we do, our service recovery measurements are the same, and we we've standardized that so that we can benchmark for them how well they handle problems. And if I was to say one thing that you know would be nice to have in my headstone was we got hotels to think less about the perfect guest room and more about the perfect recovery. And the example would be you can spend a hundred thousand dollars perfecting a guest room, or you can spend five dollars recovering when there's a problem by giving the guest a free drink. And so, back in in the early 2000s, when we started working with Kimpton, and Kimpton asked us to design the program for them, when we sat down with them, we discussed what were the most important things. And this was before really boutique hotels were even known about as a segment. And as you know, Mark, the reason why boutique and lifestyle hotels are so sought after and why the industry is so important is because they get a higher average daily rate than chain hotels. They make more money. And so, while it's a wonderful thing that their lifestyles, they're just more profitable. And while Kimpton and Commune and folks like that were well on the front side of that, they were looking and saying, what is it that makes the, the boutique experience? Well, yes, in the design uh, in case goods, there's some whimsical things there that are hard to reproduce if you're a big chain hotel. But at the end of the day, it came back to some really basic things. Did you feel welcomed that first 10 minutes of this day? What happened when things went wrong? And the recovery and things like, for one of the things we measure is, uh, did you feel like your problem was handled by a friend? And that's a yes/no question, and it has to be explained either way. Do you create problems? I mean, are there, are there little tricks you have to create problems? Yes. 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 I mean, it depends. Uh, Give mo- us an example. Go and tell us about one. I know you don't <laughs> want to tell us all, but tell well, us one thing. That's- ser- service recoveries. We put them into two categories. One's extraordinary need, uh, where you would walk down the front desk at one o'clock in the morning and say, "I need a prescription filled right now. Where do I go?" And they want to make sure the front desk sends you to an open pharmacy. Or something like that. The other one would be the complaint recovery, where you're checking out the hotel and you say, you know, my guest room was really unclean. What we do with our evaluators is that um, if they don't have a complaint recovery in hand, and this is very rare because usually something, we will give them a bucket list of things to choose from to complain about. 
And some of the golden oldies are my room service meal was cold. There isn't a hotel in the world that would sit there and say, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> if for some you know amazing reason a problem hasn't occurred, you will generate one to test it. It's- I, I th- yes, but again, we, the one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to create a very stilted problem. The other thing, too, is we don't want the hotel to bend over backwards for something that wasn't real. And so the idea really is that if something hasn't happened at the point of sale where the appreciation is shown for the payment and they ask, how was the stay, Mr. Elwood, if you have nothing that was wrong, we would ask you to say one thing. And again, the reason why is because the client wants to know what happens when a guest is checking out and someone says, oh, by the way, you know, my room was really noisy. I couldn't operate the HVAC. They know that guest is going to two places with that comment, all their friends and family and perhaps TripAdvisor. They want to short circuit it right there at the payment. And think about it, this is one business that you can really think about where you spend all your time and money at the location of the business. You have plenty of opportunity to catch short circuit complaints before they get out the door. When you drive off the lot with a brand new car, they're not going to find out about your problems until weeks later. And so it's a really kind of interesting idea in the sense that they have a chance to capture that. And one innovation you're seeing now in the industry, you referred to Lord of the App, is they're now surveying you on your app while you're at the stay. I know you've checked in. You're part of a corporate company that does 100,000 room nights with us a year. You're now on your second night. Let me pull you to see how things are going before you get out the door. Mark is making a face right now. That might be a little too invasive. I find that that horrifying, the idea that I get a message on my phone going, we know you've been there for two nights. (laughs) Did you enjoy your scrambled eggs this morning? You just think, why are you watching me like that? It's a new level of service, right? No, it's just, I'm like, is there a camera above my bed? Are you watching me in the bathroom? What is there? In the lamp. So so if you get a text that says, how's that lamb you're eating? It would work against me. It's funny that you mentioned that because what Laura's mentioned before about the apps that allow you not to interact with people, basically most business class hotels or extended stay hotels are, are formulated so that you never have to come in contact with anybody. The breakfast is self-serve. The, the, the rooms are set up so that they can last for three or four days. Without a, when you get into a high service environment like Four Seasons or luxury or even business class hotels, the thought process has been, we have to give you a lot of service. We have to engage with you in a, in a high level. We have to use your guest, your last name at least five times during the check-in or else. And that's, that comes from AAA and Forbes as well because they've been training on that carrot really for years and years. The new luxury is about discretion. And so, for instance, with, um, with St. Regis in particular, they look at a guest who's sitting at a table with a, a man, a woman, and two children. Okay, they, they say on a Friday, that might be a business traveler with uh, somebody else, and those kids might not be their kids. On a Sunday or a Saturday, that is probably someone who might be having special time with their family, and that's it. So the server now has to gauge what they're after. So the f- person sitting down on a breakfast on a Friday wants a quick check. They want to be turned around quickly. The person there on a Saturday may want less touches and uh, to be activated by a signal from you. So this, this is where luxury is, in particular is going, where they're trying much harder to read the guests and read the guests in a real-time environment because the idea that they can use your guest history and they know that you like the financial times under your desk every morning, very difficult to execute, very difficult to do it consistently and uh, to do it without ringing wrong notes and so, or, or taking big risks um, in, in that case. So it really has come down to saying, ask the guests a what and how question 
when they check in. That's now a standard that we've been measuring, and now hotel companies are taking and saying, you know, uh, when you check in at a hotel a Friday at six o'clock at night, you say, you know, what was the trip in like? Because you're saying it was terrible, it was awful. I just need to get to my room. Then boom, you're in. There's your keys on your way. Uh, if the guy's chatting and wants to talk a little bit, you might say, you know what? I, if you've been traveling all day, the restaurant's going to close around here in about an hour. Yeah. Let me get to something. Reading so it that way. It's reading, and so it's a as you can imagine. People in a corporate boardroom, you know, the hair standing up on top of their head saying, I'm trusting a, you know, $14 an hour employee to handle a guest who's going to spend $3,000 here to gauge them and do that. And it's, it's becoming more and more a reality. And younger travelers in particular are receptive to it and actually like it because they don't want to have their last name used 10 times. Their father's hotel or their mother's hotel is not the luxury hotel that they want. See, I want a butler. I want a butler right there, standing there just waiting for my yeah, every order. I'm, I'm with that one. I, I feel like we should forward this podcast to every hotel and restaurant that we've ever been in touch with. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the lessons learned, I've got it. Okay. If there's ever hair, beware. Mm-hmm. That's my catchphrase. What else? I love this, like, what you were just saying about service and how luxury has been redefined. I mean... I feel like there's a lot to learn in the service industry here. And do you ever release any kind of like tips that you've learned over the years? Or is there like a little form you send around to the different hotels you've evaluated, you know, best practices, stuff like that? We do share a lot of best practices. And again, that's the crowdsourcing aspect of what we have with 25,000 people. They're not only out staying in our hotels and dining at our restaurants, they're dining at a lot of different restaurants and a lot of hotels. And we get a lot of idea generation of, I saw this at this particular hotel. Where we share one client's ideas and another is, is pretty, uh, we have a pretty Chinese wall in between those things yeah. because of the things we don't want to give away secrets. But uh, there's always someone innovating. And, and that's really the wonderful thing about this business, as opposed to perhaps some other businesses, is that uh, travel is always changing. Uh, it's always evolving. Dining is, is so different than it was even 10 years ago. And these businesses, particularly in the restaurant business, where it's very still very entrepreneurial and still very fragmented, mostly mom and pop. I mean, once you get past the, the especially in luxury or upper end, once you get past the first 10 chains, it's groups of three. It's Stephen Starr, it's John George, people like that with 14 restaurants. They are bare-knuckled innovators. Yeah. And, they are, and they know that they have to do it with limited resources. And so they're always trying new things. They're so close to their guests in terms of what they want and what they refer to. There's a ton of innovation going on. It's funny because, you know, uh, we always talk about, you know, Steve Jobs would say, I'll tell my customers what they want. And that is, you know, that's nice. That sounds really good. In the restaurant business, it's exactly the opposite. Guests tell the operators what they want, and you really should listen to what they want because they, they do tell you. One last question. Why don't you inspect airlines? Good question. It, it is a good question. Um, I'm probably never going to get an airline business after this, but uh, it's a commodity, and they don't care. They really don't care about customer service. I'm sorry to say it, but at the end of the day, um, you know, they want you in their points program. They want to make it extremely difficult for you to switch, and it's it's a commodity product. And it's, I could even say the same thing with some, like fast food and some of the things like that. At McDonald's or uh, other fast food companies in the boardroom, they're not talking about customer service. They're talking about consistency, pricing and uh, convenience and cleanliness. And so, uh, airlines, uh, while they are part of the travel business, and what's really an alarming thing is uh, I, I listened to a blog post by a, a pretty important person saying how hotels should take their cue from the airline industry in terms of you know s- simplifying the points program. 
And, uh, you know, my thought was like the airline industry is absolutely maybe the last place I'd want to look for for innovation in terms of customer service, but not to, not to denigrate them entirely. It's the nature of their business. That's, a, that's amazing. That's a great I mean, point to end on. I happen to agree. So Me too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Jim and Mark, for coming in today. That was, that was fascinating. Love you to go around, just say where we can find you online, if we should follow you on social. Sure. You can find us at coilhospitality.com, um, and that's the best place to reach us. My email address is jcoil at coilhospitality.com. I offer anyone they'd like to reach out to me, I'm happy to respond. It's coil with a Y as well. C-O-Y-L-E, like boil or doyle with a C. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood, Mark with a K, Elwood with two L's. Great. You can find Traveler at cntraveler.com, on iTunes and SoundCloud. That's where Travelog, our podcast, lives. We have many podcasts. Please come listen to all of them. They and make- rate and review them. Please give us feedback. We love hearing from you. Even if you want us not to do something, please tell us, because this is a podcast we want you to love. So help us make it even better. You can tweet at us. Oh, God. I was going to say, Mark, I, I re- we don't really like to be reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> That's the perfect thing to talk about. All right. And I'm Laura Redmond, Laura underscore Redmond. And that's it. So have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. Thank you.